All right, show of hands. Who likes this weather outside? The real New Yorkers right there, I can see. I am from the South, from North Carolina. We do not like anything below 40. It does not float. Um, I apologize if my voice is a little raspy. I got a cold this week, and so I've been cooped up. Um, but we're going to get through this together, guys. We're going to do it. <clears throat> Welcome to Hope Brooklyn. Yeah, thanks for the woot, the encouragement right there. <laughs> Love it. Uh, Welcome to Hope Brooklyn. My name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so excited you're here. Uh, we are a church plant. We are part of the Hope Church NYC Network, <clears throat> which is a uh, community, a family of like-minded churches throughout the NYC area. And we are in our preview season of existence. Now, we've had some questions and some really good questions of what does it mean to be in the preview season? What is that about? And so what I do, I, I thought I'd take the first couple minutes and sort of go through what we mean when we say the preview season. In essence, what we've done is we've, we've dug out the foundation. We've dug out the foundation and we're starting to lay the, the flooring. We're starting to lay the groundwork. So to illustrate the preview season, I got this picture right here. There you go. I don't know who the dog is. Um, maybe that's like our, our angel of Hope Brooklyn or something, <laughs> or the boxer. This is where Hope Brooklyn is right now. We have laid the foundation and a lot of the work we're doing is, is, is sort of behind the scenes stuff. It, it's underneath. It's, it's setting culture. Um, so a lot of the stuff, you won't even notice what's happening. Our leadership team is figuring out what it is to lead for the first time. Uh, we're figuring out how to make Sunday operations go. Um, but importantly for you guys, culture is being established. And I've used this metaphor before, um, but culture is kind of like cement. It really is. When it's wet, you can mold it, you can shape it to whatever you want, but as soon as the cement dries, it's really tough to change. Nothing but a jackhammer will get it up. Right now, we are in this incredible time, this exciting season of getting to shape culture, of getting to, to keep our eyes focused on what Jesus is calling us to be. And, and that's a big question, and a lot of churches define that differently. And so what I thought is I thought I would sort of lay out three key points of this is Hope Brooklyn's culture, this is what we're going to be about. So whether you want to stay or go, it's, you know, it's nothing personal. This is who we are, and therefore, if you're staying, then this is what you're committing to as well. And honestly, we're taking a page out of Jesus' playbook. So what is our foundation? What is our culture? This is Jesus' method. When Jesus showed up, he went to 12 men, and he invited them to follow him. And if they said yes, they started a three-year journey of living together. This is what he did. Jesus was constantly surrounded by both the crowds and his disciples, which is interesting. When Jesus was teaching, when he was healing, when he was walking through Galilee and ancient Palestine, there were those surrounding him who would call him Lord. There were those surrounding him calling him Messiah, saying, hey, we, whoever you are, we're following you. But there were also those around him who were called the crowds by the gospel writers. And those are just people looking for a show. Those are just people with questions. Those are people trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. And everywhere Jesus went, you see both crowds and disciples there. Some of y'all might come from churches. I was definitely a part of one in the past where it was purely Christians. But that's not going to be Hope Brooklyn. 
We want to be a community where no matter where you are in the spiritual spectrum, you find a home, you find welcome, you find friendship, and your questions are heard. And the reason we're able to do that is because of point number three. I'm jumping to point number three. We're a community of the story. We are people who find the story of Jesus of Nazareth utterly compelling and so compelling that we're dedicating our lives to going after this guy. So make no bones about it. What we're going to talk about here, what we're going to discuss, is the story of Jesus. But no matter where you are on that spectrum of of your involvement or your questions or your doubts about it, we need that. That's actually called being human, and you are free to be human here. You're free to have doubts. In fact, what we're going to talk about today, to follow Jesus is most of the time to not understand what he's doing, but to know there's something utterly compelling about this guy, and therefore I'm going to keep following him, even though I don't know what he's doing. So we're going to be surrounded by crowds and disciples, we're going to be a community of the story, and the the sandwich in the middle, sort of bringing those two together, we're going to be a community that eats together, face to face. You constantly see Jesus eating with people in, in his life. And he actually got a bad reputation because of the people he chose to eat with. To eat with. Um, hopefully, the same will be said of us. We will be people who eat together. So food is central to our identity. After we worship on Sundays, we have brunch that we go to, where hopefully we're able to discuss our lives. We come face to face together. We get really real. We discuss, you know, our, our beliefs, our faith systems, the past sermon. And then we also have tables, which are like our small groups throughout the week. Everything we do is going to be centered around a meal. So that's our foundation. That's sort of the culture of Hope Brooklyn, and that's what we're going to be setting during this preview season. And the reason why I want to sort of um, return to this again and again during the season is because it's so easy to forget. There's a, a friend of mine who's a phenomenal church planter, and he lives in the Washington Heights area. And he's uh, actually a really sad story. So the the church that he planted three years ago in the Washington Heights neighborhood just closed down. And I was talking with him this past week. And this guy has planted eight churches in his lifetime, like really successful. And I was like, what happened? Why why did your church, like, you know, debrief with me, help me process? Because we are at the brand, like, new stage of this. And he goes, the issue was everyone bought into the culture They bought into the vision, but as soon as services started, we default back to what we know. We all do this. There's a reason why the most common refrain, one of the most common refrains in Scripture is to remember. You ever notice that? God is always telling Israel, remember. Remember, I am the God who did this. Remember, I am the God who led you out of Egypt. Jesus, when we take the Lord's Supper, eat and remember me. Remember my story. Because human nature is to forget. Human natures get caught up in the day-to-day and to forget. And he said what happened was once they started services, people forgot our vision. And I'm not sort of sharing that to scare us or anything like that. I'm sharing it to sort of, as a, to sober us a bit and be like, we must keep our eyes on the vision. And that's our vision. That's what we're going to be about. We're going to be surrounded. We're going to be a community of crowds and disciples. We're going to be a community who eats together face to face, and we are going to be a community that talks about the story of Jesus and all its fullness and complexity. So then what of you? Next slide. I don't know what that voice was right there. I have no idea. 
So what do, what do you do during the preview season? First, and quite honestly, determine whether a church plant and ours is right for you. Again, it's nothing personal if it's not, but determine whether a church plant and this vision suits you, if this is right for you. And if it is, then grab hold of the vision. Make it yours. When Paul talks about the church in the New Testament, it's interesting. He never talks about the church being centered around one person or one group of leaders. The church is us, all of us. Everyone has a purpose. Everyone has a gift. Everyone has an indispensable place in the community. And we've kind of gotten away from that in America. A lot of churches are built around um, one leader or a charismatic personality or a certain aspect. But that's not the New Testament vision. The New Testament vision of the church is where everyone has a role and an imperative role to the church community flourishing. So if this, if this suits you, if you're reading this, you're like, yeah, I want to be a part of that, then grab hold of it and make it yours. Host a table. And we're going to talk more about that. We, we currently have four tables, like our small groups, uh, throughout the week. We have four going on. Our hope is in January or February to multiply that to eight. Because I know a lot of you here live in neighborhoods where there's not a table nearby. And so we want to put one where you live. Host a table, join a team, one of our Sunday morning teams that help Sundays go, and then invite your friends to the table. And that's capital T table. So that means um, Sundays, that means tables, the dinners throughout the week, spread the word. And as I was thinking about who to invite, and I know you cannot read that at the bottom, so I'll sort of read it for you. Um, This comes from Tim Keller, who is a phenomenal pastor and church planter of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the Upper West Side. And he was talking about the early days of Redeemer and their vision and how they sort of spread the vision, who they were looking for to invite into their community. And he put this on a spectrum, all right? On both ends, in the red arrows, are uh, on the left side are people who are not Christians. And we realize that we are truncating uh, human complexity. But on the left side are people who are not Christians, and they don't entertain doubt. They know they're right. On the far right are people who are Christians who also don't entertain doubt, who don't want to have a discussion, who know they are right in every aspect of what they believe. Because we are a community of discussion, because we are a community of the story, those might not be the best people. Um, They might not gel with our church, which is totally fine. But in the middle, what you have are those who are Christians, but who entertain doubt, who are able to show up on a Sunday and be like, look, I'm struggling today. I don't know what I believe I really need Jesus to show himself. I need y'all to help me out. Uh, I'm willing to learn those who are teachable. And then on the other side, with the circle around it, those who are not Christians, who also entertain doubt, who are open to a discussion, who are open to hearing new things. Um, Maybe they were Christians in the past, but something happened and they were hurt and they're not anymore. Um, Maybe they've never come to a church. Those green Rectangles is who, who we think that Hope Brooklyn would be a good fit for. So if you have friends in your networks or your colleagues who are in, that, in those areas, invite them to the table. But this is our vision. This is what the preview season is going to be about. And if you have questions about this, please come see me or Nathan or email us at hopebk at hopechurchnyc.org. 
All right, enough of that. Let's get on to the, to the text today. So today's our last Sunday of the series, What is the Gospel? Uh, we've been looking at stories. We've been looking at um, texts in Scripture that sort of epitomize this idea of uh, good news, which is what gospel means. It comes from the Greek euangelion, and it's literally translated good news report. So picture uh, the newspaper boy on the corner, extra, extra, read all about this. This is the gospel. This is good news. You need to read this because it affects you. It changes things. And today what we're going to look at to end our series is one of my favorite stories. It comes from the gospel of John. And it's chapter 9, verse 1 through 34. And I think it is the quintessential image of what the gospel is and how it affects a life, how it affects a town, how it affects a group of people. And so in this preview season, I sort of want to offer up this image as like the personification of Hope Brooklyn. I want us to be like this story. I want our community to be like this story. All right? So we are in John 9, John 9, verses 1 through 34. I probably should have found it before I came up here. There we go. John 9, 1 through 34. This is how it starts. And as he went along, he, meaning Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Now some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Now some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this 
because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Let's pray real quick. Jesus, we just want to know you better. In different ways, we've each been confronted by this moment of transcendence, by this moment where our lives have been haunted by the thought that there's something bigger. There's something more at play. There's something deeper at play. And it feels a lot like love. You are love, Jesus. Your story testifies to that. And we want to know this better. We know our, our minds are hard, and, but will you, will you soften them? Will you soften our minds and our hearts to hear your story? Lord, would you make Hope Brooklyn, your community, would you make us into a community of the gospel, that this type of story would be the spirit of our gatherings, of our friendship, of our intimacy, of our lives as we leave here. Lord, just be present today. It's in your resurrected name we pray. Amen. All right. So we're asking the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Um, And I want to use a little mnemonic device to help us out today, because I think this mnemonic, um, sort of each letter, is that what a mnemonic is? Each letter stands for something else? Yeah. So I want to use that because uh, I think it'll help us sort of understand what's going on in this story today. So this is what the gospel is. The gospel is cray. The gospel is like cray cray, all right? It is absolutely bonkers. First, C. (laughs) That's all I got there, guys. That's all I got. (laughs) The gospel is cosmic. It's cosmic. AKA, it's bigger than you. Now, this is important. The story opens with the disciples asking Jesus a question. They say, who sinned? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he should be born blind? Now, that's important because it opens uh, by exposing a religious framework that his disciples have. Who did something wrong that this man was born blind? Blindness is an effect of someone's wrongdoing. And now that's very, uh, that's an intra-Jewish debate. That's something that we can relate with. Uh, In Exodus 20, from the Ten Commandments, we have Testament where God goes, I, the Lord, visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of generations 
of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the disciples could have been referencing that as a way to understand, uh, to, to, to premise their question. There's also other texts. There's a verse in Ezekiel, which is part of uh, the Jewish scripture, which refutes that, which says, no, 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 God doesn't, that's, that's not the way he works. God doesn't visit um, iniquity because of the sins of the parents. That's not the way it works. So it was a debate in Judaism. And so the disciples ask, well, well who sinned? They were exposing their religious framework. Religion is causal. Religion is correlated and religion is just. Everything makes sense. And we do this too, right? We see someone dressed a certain way and we immediately make judgments. At least I do. I see someone dressed a certain way and I think, oh, that makes sense. One station in life is commensurate with what one deserves, right? That's, that's the religious mindset. This man was born blind, someone sinned. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. Who did it? But Jesus kind of slips out of this framework. He says, no one sinned, but that the works of God might be revealed in him. Now that's a troubling answer because if someone sinned, then we would be viewed as the unrighteous ones deserving a punishment, but Jesus or God would be viewed as the righteous one who just, hey, it was your fault, I levy it out. But if no one sinned, then where did this blindness come from, right? It almost seems to suggest, Jesus is seeming to suggest that God might have caused blindness, which is troubling to say the least. Now, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say God caused blindness. He said God is using blindness for his purposes. Jesus refutes a religious story and refocuses the disciples' attention onto another story. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, I don't have the time, nor do you have the cognitive ability to understand how the cosmic story unfolded as it did. But suffice it to say, eyes are meant to see, and there are some eyes born not functioning. And it's not because of anyone's sin, the way you understand sin. There is a brokenness present in creation. And in a sense, it's not your fault. In a sense, it is. And it will be dealt with, but it's bigger than you. Jesus is almost slipping out of their question and sort of pulling back the veil and saying the way you understand sin is shallow. The way religion understands sin is shallow. That if someone messed up, therefore there's punishment, that's shallow. It's, it's bigger than that. It's absolutely bigger than that. And they have also testament uh, to that as well. In, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he talks about in Romans 8 that creation is waiting with eager expectation for redemption, for the sons of God to be revealed. In Romans 7, just a chapter earlier, Paul says, I find it a law in myself that when I want to do good, I can't. And when I want the, the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I do. As if to say there's a law of sin working inside of me, working inside of, of the cosmic order that is wrecking havoc. Now, why this is important? Because we've been told a lot that the way to Jesus is that you're a sinner, repent, and believe. Which is kind of true, but it's also kind of bigger than that. In a sense, 
God, Jesus did not come just for your repentance. Jesus came to fix the entire cosmic order, to put it back to right. Religion says that sin is something we do. The gospel says that sin is something we're enslaved to. Us sinning, us making bad decisions is simply the final manifestation of a, of a soul that is enslaved to this cosmic brokenness. There's this brokenness that works itself like a virus infecting the entire cosmic DNA. I love this quote from um, a, a theologian, Joseph Mangina, and he says, we don't get neat piles. We simply know that history in its present form is not history as God wills it, and that even the history that God does not will is subservient to his larger purpose. Creation and history are dark riddles. We understand very little of what goes on around us. It's almost as if we have two-dimensional vision, but we're living in a three-dimensional world, and Jesus comes to bring the three-dimensional world into our lives. But how can a cube explain itself to a circle? Right? It's not going to work. We're a circle, and we're asking the question, who sinned? Jesus is the cube, understanding the cube of the cosmic story, and says, well, that's not exactly the right question. I don't have time to answer that question. Just suffice it to say, we're dealing with it. That the world is enslaved to this brokenness, and we're dealing with it. The gospel doesn't answer the question, why is there blindness? Why is there brokenness? Rather, the gospel is telling us what God is intending to do about it. He plans to use it for his good purposes. Now, this is a story with particular resonance with me. I was born with something called Golden Heart Syndrome. The way the doctors explained it to my mom is that when she was pregnant with me in the 15 uh, to 45-day range, before she even knew she was pregnant, a blood vessel in my embryonic brain popped. And consequently, it sort of stunted my development. So I was born um, with, a, with missing a left ear. I was born with my left jaw incomplete. My insides are all in a tizzy, man. They're like, stuff is, it's not normal in here. I had two holes in my heart. My heart's like in the middle, facing backwards, scoliosis, random stuff. Now, 2,000 years ago, my parents would have been looked upon as sinners. I would have been looked upon as a sinner because that makes sense. It's correlated. It's just we can comprehend it. And it's interesting because when I was raised, my parents, who I love dearly, they quoted Psalm 139 to me. You might have heard it. I praise you for you knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to, to make sure I understood that I was special, that God knew me exactly as I am, which is true. But both examples kind of suffer from the same error, right? If you were to ask me, do I think God intended me to be born or children to be born with a brokenness in their bodies, I'd say no. I'd say no. But then what do I do with that? The gospel says, the gospel doesn't answer what exactly happened to the original intention of God's plan. The gospel says, according to Jesus, I'm dealing with it. I will put it to right.
Both kind of flatten the complexity of the matter. It doesn't matter necessarily why or how this came to be. What matters is it's going to be redeemed. And this is the second point of this story. The gospel is cosmic. The gospel is also about redemption. The gospel is about redemption. And this is why the first point is absolutely crucial. Because our lives will testify to a story bigger than us. Redemption comes from the Hebrew word ga'al. And at its most literal, it means to buy back. To buy back, to purchase back. And, and usually it refers to being ransomed from slavery. Now think about that. Redemption means there was a time when I owned something or someone. They were, they were with me. They were in my possession. And then I lost them somehow. Maybe I sold them. Maybe they ran away. Don't, don't know. I lost them. To redeem them means I'm going to buy them back. Redemption is constantly used when, when God, throughout his prophets and throughout the Psalms, tells Israel, remember, I am the God who redeemed you out of slavery of Egypt. Now that is striking, because what it means about redemption is that redemption means the old is remembered, and it means the old must be claimed. If the gospel is about redemption, redemption means the old is remembered and the old must be claimed. Verse 8 and 9 in this story, the dude is healed and the healing is so striking, the transformation is so great that he's not even recognized. Did y'all catch that? He's not even recognized. All it was was his eyes. His eyes are open, he's walking around. He's not begging anymore. But the transformation was so great, people are asking, who is this guy? Is this the guy, the beggar, who used to ask for money? No, it can't be him. No, 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 I think it is him. We don't know. I remember my older brother, Matthew, I've talked about him before. He became a Christian at age 27. Matthew um, was in a relationship with a woman named Crystal, who's now his wife, and she is lovely, really good for him. But for eight years prior, to him becoming a Christian. I still remember when he became a Christian, my younger brother Andrew and I would watch Matthew sometimes and be like, who is this? In the eight years prior of dating Crystal, before he became a Christian, I don't think I saw him hold her hand once, didn't kiss her, definitely not in front of others. Maybe I saw him smile at her, maybe. After he became a Christian, the PDA was off the charts. Like, always holding her, kissing her forehead, laughing with her. And Andrew and I are like, who is this guy? Like, seriously, and there were literal moments where we're looking at Matthew going, you are not our brother. Because the transformation was so great. We're thinking, oh, like, we don't know who this is. And it's interesting, it's interesting because this man who had been subjected to prejudices, to judgments about his sin or his parents' sin, his entire life has a choice. He had a choice, guys. People are arguing, is this the beggar? And he has a choice to say, yes, I'm him, 
or no, I'm not him. And it could have been so much easier to say, no, no, that was never me. I'm this guy from a foreign land. I got a lot of money or whatever. He could have rewritten his story. But what does he do? He says, I am that man. I am him. The one who was blind and begging for years, that's me. The one who you judged for years, that's me. Redemption does not erase your scars, friends. It beautifies them. And it places them into a larger story about grace and freedom and joy, which requires their presence. I met a man at a, uh, at a pastor conference, and he had this huge, gnarly white beard. He seemed like he had an awesome story. I didn't get a chance to talk with him. But he had pagan tattoos on his face. But they had been, um, he had tattoos on top of those to convert them into Christian symbols. And I just wanted to be like, tell me your story. You are a walking image of redemption. To truly be redeemed, to truly be redeemed, the gospel form of redemption means the old must be remembered. You must say, I am that man. I am that woman. That was me, but I'm not that anymore. You gotta be able to claim it. The old must be remembered, the old must be claimed, which means whatever parts of our lives we are not able to fully claim yet before others, the gospel redemption hasn't sunken into that place yet. There's no shame. There's no shame. Religion says there should be shame. Religion is built upon shame, but not the gospel. The gospel knows the depths of our brokenness. That's why Jesus doesn't answer their question. He goes, look, you don't even understand. There's a brokenness in creation that's far bigger than your own little life. I love your little life. It's super important to me, but it's far bigger, and I'm dealing with all of it. The gospel says that there's no depth of depravity that I haven't seen and that I haven't swallowed up. And you will know that you are fully my own when you can talk about that former person. That was me. Yes, I was the addict. I was the one abused. I was the abuser. I'm the one who's so super lonely. I'm that one. I'm the one who cheated. Yes, I am fully that one but I'm not that one anymore. Jesus met me there. He met me there. And he didn't shame me, and he didn't judge me, and he gave me eyes to see. He gave me new life. And if therefore I'm good enough for him, that's all that matters. That is the gospel form of redemption. The old must be remembered, the old must be claimed. Whatever parts of your story uh, you're rejecting, the gospel hasn't sunk in there yet. At Hope Brooklyn, we claim scars. Next, the gospel is cosmic. The gospel is redemptive. The gospel is animosity generative, creates animosity. And generally, it creates animosity and division between those who want the how and those who want the who. In verse 8 and 9, the people are divided over this man. Something has happened. This guy has been given sight, and they are divided. Who is this? Verse 16, the Pharisees are divided over this Jesus. How did he do it? How did he heal this guy? He healed him on a Sabbath. Does that mean he's a sinner? 
but he can't be a sinner because he healed. He gave eyes to, to a blind man. He gave sight to a blind man. So there's all this division and this animosity over trying to figure out what just happened. The fact that Jesus opened this man's eyes with mud and telling him to wash it off is super profound and allegorical because the question of who sinned, this entire story, demonstrate almost like this false religious framework that Jesus is saying it's not real and it's not there. Go wash it off. I am the light of the world. See me. But washing mud as a mechanism for sight also divides because it doesn't answer the question. How? How did this happen? It doesn't answer the question in a suitable fashion. You know, the Pharisees asked this man three times, how did you receive your sight? And he tells them three times and they, and they can't accept it. Mud is not a convincing answer. The gospel is almost like um, Anna, my wife, is a cinematographer. And I remember one day she received a box and she thought it was equipment. And she was like super excited, doing a little happy dance or something. I should have gotten on tape. It would have been awesome. And she's doing this happy dance. She's got her new piece of equipment in the mail. And she opens the box and her face goes, and she pulls out toilet paper. We had ordered toilet paper, I guess. That's the gospel. Y'all see where I'm going with that? Does that make sense? The gospel is this, this gift, this gift. And we think it's one thing, and it always disappoints our expectations at first. Always. It's never what we think. How did you receive your sight? Did he call down angels? Was it this miraculous, like, levitation? No. He put mud on my eyes and told me to go wash it off. What? Mud is not a suitable answer. Mud disappoints our expectations. The Pharisees wanted to know, how does this happen? Religion wants to know, how does this happen? And they want to know how because they want to control it. They want to control and master and build systems that said, oh, you're blind? That's because so-and-so sinned. They want to build those systems. Oh, this is what you're suffering from? Oh, well, just take two of these and do this little dance and this ritual and you're good. The gospel doesn't give us that. The gospel is not, does not answer the how question. The gospel answers the who question. The gospel asks how because we're in love with the who. You cannot separate the how from the who. I realize I'm getting really wordy probably with these right now. You can't separate the how from the who. The gospel tells a story about who has come and what he has done. And we have no control over that who, none whatsoever. Most of the time, we don't understand why that who is doing what he does. Jesus heals blindness a couple times in the gospels. He never does it the same way twice. Did you know that? He never heals blindness the same way twice. The point is clear. It's not about how he heals blindness. It's about I have the power to do that. It's about me. So long as we're looking for the how, we're looking for a magic trick. We can take the gift and be like, all right, cool, I don't need you anymore. I can figure out my own life. But that's the issue. That's what got us in this whole predicament in the first place. Because we thought we could be like God. When the gospel is, follow 
me. The gospel is we are so in love with the who that the how comes with that. And it creates animosity. It creates division between those who want to understand how it happened and those who are content with just following this Jesus. That's why we're a community of discussion at Hope Brooklyn, because we're talking about the who. And I find it interesting. I heard this in seminary, and I really like it. You ever wonder why there are four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible? There are four. Why didn't we just have one? Why did we need all four? There are lots of answers, but one I found really compelling, because they all sort of emphasize a different aspect of Jesus' nature. Matthew talks about um, how Jewish Jesus is, how he's the continuation of the story of Israel. Mark talks about the power of Jesus. Luke talks about sort of the the social dynamic of Jesus, his his social justice bent. And John talks about sort of the, the glory of Jesus. They all emphasize a different aspect. It'd be like this. If I wanted to set you up with a blind date and all I said was, she's funny, Cool, all right, that's great, it's good for starters. Anything else? No, that's all I can tell you. When I meet her, she's funny. But what if another friend said, oh, she's really kind? Well, now you have a fuller picture. She's funny and she's kind, right? So what if this gospel, the community of discussion about the who is because we come together, not to create our systems, but to talk about just how amazing this Jesus is. Oh, look what he did in my life, look what I've seen. Oh, that's super cool. Look at this. Look at this angle. And in the discussion, generally over food, we are transformed by that. We are a community that discusses the who. And then finally, the gospel's cosmic, it's redemptive, it's animosity generative, and then the gospel creates yes and no witnesses. I'm kind of stretching with these. I know I am. I'm sorry. Yes and no witnesses. That's one of Anna's pet peeves with me. She'll ask me a question, and I'll always be like, well, yes and no. She's like, no, 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 just give me a yes or a no. I'm like, well, you can. It's more complex than that. It's yes and no. It's both. The gospel creates yes and no witnesses, which is another way of saying truthful witnesses. The man in this story, he constantly says, I don't know. He constantly says, I don't know. In verse 12, they asked him, where's the man who healed you? I don't know. In verse 24 and 25, give glory to God. We know that Jesus, this Jesus, we know he's a sinner. If he's a sinner or not, I don't know. He constantly says, I don't know. He tells his story three times, and all three times it's free of conjecture. He doesn't psychoanalyze it. He doesn't try to to, um, speak into what he doesn't know. He says what he knows. And he leaves the rest unsaid. The man called Jesus. He put mud on my eyes. He told me to go wash. I washed and I could see. That's what I know. He gives a two-dimensional answer. He speaks as truthfully as he can and no more. Friends, I think where we get ourselves in trouble as the church is we speak too much. Starting with me as a pastor. I try to get my sermons below 30 minutes. It never works. We speak into circumstances that we don't fully know. And it's absolutely okay and actually better to say, 
I don't know. Jesus called us to be white witnesses to the light of the world. A lot of the mechanics of how grace works, we don't know. But what we do know, that we speak, which is why it's a story, which is why the gospel is transformative when we tell the story over and over and over. In fact, the truest expression of the gospel I've ever found is in this story. Give glory to God, the Pharisees say. We know this man is a sinner. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. I'm going after that guy. That's all I know. You're you're the smart ones. You're the religious elite. Y'all can do your theologizing and whatever. I don't know if he was a sinner or not. I know that I was blind, subject to your judgments, your prejudices my entire life, and this man showed compassion to me, and he opened my eyes. He showed me love. I'm going after him. That's all I know. To say, I don't know, but this is what I have, is the truest expression of the gospel. I was 16 I was in a hospital room. I had just had a major surgery, and I was so done with surgeries. When you're 16, the last thing you want to spend your summer doing is laying cooped up in a hospital room and in your house. You're lonely. You have no self-esteem. It was, it was bad. It was definitely one of my darkest summers. And I, I had known the Bible, I had known parts of it. I had known about God. And at 16, I woke up, and I'm in this hospital room by myself, and I just go, Lord, you promised you would be there. You promised that you would always be present. Where are you? And like a wind, friends, the love of God just exploded inside of me. I felt a wind pass over me. I felt love explode. I wept. I didn't feel pain in my body in that moment. And my head was the size of a basketball. I was on lots of painkillers. And I just wept and praised God. Now, of course, we can explain that many different ways. We could explain it with the painkillers. We can explain you're an emotional traumatic situation. Of course. Here's what I know. That before that day, I knew about God. And in that hospital room, the love of Jesus met me in a way, a tangible way that I can't explain fully, but I know whatever that was, I'm going after him. I'm going after him. And the parts where I don't know, the days where I'm struggling, the days where I don't have faith, I'll tell you. I'll be real about it. I'll be real. But I know, I know what happened. I know that changed me. And I can't, I can't go back to the way it was. At Hope Brooklyn, we will not be a community that knows it all. We'll tell our stories face-to-face at the table. We will tell the cosmic story. We will invite all to the table because all are welcome. And we will be a community that says, wash off the mud and see him. Wash off that false religious framework and see the light of the world who has come to set us free. I want to invite the worship team back up. We're about to take a, uh, enter into the time of communion. 
And before we do that, I just want to uh, direct your attention again. Um, every Sunday we talk about, you know, we don't know where anyone is on their spiritual journey. Uh, so we have connection cards in the back and, and outside. If you want more information about, like, what the gospel is, who this Jesus is, if you have questions you need answered, fill it out, the connection card, and just put, uh, circle the box that says, what is Christianity? We're going to be starting up a class in the spring called Foundations. It's going to be a lot of fun. There'll be more information to come. But it will be good for us just to, like, keep that, and we'll send you an invite as we get closer. Or if you want to know more about baptism, Baptism is another way. We talked earlier about us having two-dimensional vision and a three-dimensional world. Baptism is another one of those transcendent moments where a three-dimensional reality rushes into our two-dimensional worlds. It's powerful. It's, it's the next step. If you want to follow Jesus, or if you have questions about what that looks like, fill out the bubble for baptism. And drop your connection cards in the generosity box in the back. We'd love to talk more about that. We take communion each week at the end of every service. And we do so for the simple reason, we always say it, no matter what you walked in with, no matter what kind of week you had, no matter how today flowed, this gets the final word always this is the final word because this is the climax of the story when God demonstrated his absolutely unchanging love for us by offering up his body and his blood for us